Good morning. We want to begin a new series this um, month looking at the character of Joseph. Before we do that, we want to pray. And before I do that, uh, I know last week that Eric and Lisa talked in the Sunday school hour, but I don't think they were introduced here. So why don't you guys stand? You're going to be going back to Morocco when? Today. Today. So they're going to leave. And uh, they are missionaries to Morocco. We do uh, support them, but we're talking about what it's like to be their kind of home sending church, right? So pray for us, make sure you say hi to them, and remember them in your prayer as they go back to a country that is mostly Muslim. So, thank you guys for coming. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just appreciate that we get to be here this morning to worship you. That is why we're here, to humbly bow our knee and submit to you our Lord and Savior, our King of Kings. We pray, Lord, as we open up your word that you speak to us. Your Holy Spirit does such a good job of that, but we don't always listen very well. But sharpen our ears and may we hear what the Spirit says to us so we can take it, apply it, and understand what it means to be one of your followers every day in the world we live. So teach us what it means to think, teach us what it means to feel, teach us what it means to serve in the ways that honor you. We do think of those among us this morning, Lord, that need your healing touch. We pray for them as they are facing surgery, have had surgery, and are in recuperation. We celebrate for others that have made some huge milestones in their marriages. Um, we need examples like that today of what it means for better, for worse, for rich or poor in health and in sickness. We pray for those that are new into this world as new babies are born. But thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege to worship you. It's such an honor to be in your presence. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. You can turn to Genesis chapter 37 a while. That's going to be our text for the morning. I want to talk about family history. And when you study the counseling and just even our culture as a whole, family history plays a prominent role in variety of therapies that we offer today in America. They talk about the influence of the mother and the influence of the father. They talk about two-parent homes versus single-parent homes. But here's the question I have for you this morning. How are your perceptions about people affected based on their family history? When you meet someone for the first time and you start getting details about their family life and details about their upbringing and details about their present life, how does it impact you about how you think about who they are, about their potential in life, about what God can do through them and in them? Now, as you're thinking about that question, let me give you a, a case study. And think about your perspective about this case study. I read about this case study in a book recently. The individual they were talking about was one of the younger kids. His real mom had died at an early age. His brothers 
all had different mothers. There was four different mothers in this set. A lot of internal conflict based upon who had which mom because dad had his favorites. They were continually moving from place to place. They really never settled down in in one town. Dad had his own problems. He was in business with his older brother. He ripped him off and just took off. Hadn't seen him in years. They weren't talking. In one town, he had trouble with his boss and had to leave quickly. Again, under suspicious circumstances. And so you meet someone like that today and you hear his story. What chance would a boy like that growing up in a home have today? How would you answer that question? Well, it's no surprise, at least according to how we think, that this boy grows up and where does he find himself? In prison. He's accused of sexual harassment on the job. He's tried, convicted. He claims innocence, but the court of his day found him guilty. Now, to his credit, in prison, he became a model prisoner. And through a very set of odd circumstances, when he gets out, there's this boss that gives him a chance. And he rose up through the latter success in this particular company, and he became very prominent, very wealthy, and very powerful. So started out this way, ends up in prison, ends up over here, one of the key influential people in this particular company. Well, if you guessed, we're talking about Joseph. It's the story we're going to read the next four weeks. And I go back to this question. How are your perceptions about people affected based on their family history? What kind of labels and boxes do you put them in? Now, one of the questions we constantly ask here at GBC is, how do we live faithfully in Christ in our world? And that's a very loaded question. But let me give you a sub-question of that. Do you believe in transformation? Do you believe in what Paul says, all things become new? Or do you have certain people that are beyond hope for this transformation? What about those people you put in boxes? Instead of your box seeing them in the light of Christ, you see them in all this cultural mess that we get caught up in. And here's what I'm afraid of. With all our education today in America, with all our education even in the church, have we educated ourselves into helping people become non-transformational? Now think about that for a while. Have we educated ourselves into helping people become non-transformational? That's just the way it is. Nothing's going to change. You can't do anything about it. Now hold those questions in your mind as we read the text this morning. We're going to start at Genesis 37. We're going to read the first 11 verses. If you want to keep reading the story this week, that's great. And read it over and over again and start getting the details as I kind of mess with your minds a little bit on how we interpret this. In verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. 
And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. We don't have things like that today, do we? We're brothers telling other brothers. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his fathers and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, here's the first truth I want to talk about this morning. When you talk about relationships, when you talk about the mess of family and the mess of friends, hatred and jealousy will always lead to stupidity and pain. You can write that one down. (laughs) Hatred and jealousy will always lead to stupidity and pain. Now, you're going to find out in this story, if you don't know, here it almost leads to murder. Instead, they sell Joseph, and they lie to their father. But in their minds, life was good now. See, there are times that we so despise and hate and are jealous and envious, we start telling us things like this. Well, you know, if we only had this, if we only get rid of this, then all this stuff we feel will go away. Now, if you really believe that, I have a sweet deal on some land in North Korea right now. I will sell you after the service. (laughs) Long time ago, Nietzsche, he's a philosopher, talked about this. And he called it resentment. And you ask, what's that? Well, it's a French word. English, we talk about resentment. Resentment is resentment on steroids. Let me describe what Nietzsche talks about in our humanity, what this word means. He says, you take anger, hate, and rage, and revenge. And it's all grounded, strong belief in a narrative that we've been wronged, and we are entitled. And with this wrong, it needs to be righted. So we accuse, we blame, we vilify, we seek revenge on our terms against those who we feel are responsible Now, look at our present culture. Now, we see this in our political culture, and I use the word political culture because today our culture is everything is politics. Have you noticed that? And I will confess to you, it drives me insane. You can't say anything without somebody putting what you've said into a political box. 
And they label you and they accuse you and they blame you. Now, as a church, we have a kingdom of God core, a Christ core, not a political core. We believe our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. It is not in whoever gets into Washington. Amen? Amen. So it's hard for us to speak from our core because people want to put our words in a different setting. But I say that because look at our political culture today. How many people cry out and protest against violence while doing violence? And you see it on both sides. And I sit back and say, this is insane. You want to stop violence, but you're out there doing violence. This is what Nietzsche calls resentment. And this is what happened to Joseph's brothers. They cry foul because he's favored and they commit this horrible act by first talking about murdering their brother, but then at least selling him and lying to their father and pretending that once Joseph's gone, life will be good in the family. Joseph had to go. He was the problem. Now, here's the lesson we can learn from this. Deal with your anger, jealousy, and hatred or it will deal with you. The truth is it will eat you alive. You may hide it really well. You may deny it. You may push it under with addictions and religion. You may disguise it with success. I know I had a friend that prior to his conversion was one of the most successful business people that I knew. But he was driven because of everything inside, all the anger and the hatred and the jealousy and the sin that was in his life. Made him very successful. There are athletes that are driven by this kind of energy. But finally, it will eat your soul. And no matter how successful or no matter what happens, life will always be unfair. It will be unjust. People will disappoint you constantly. And you will always have a reason for your miserable existence. And here's what's crazy about this. And when I work with sexually abuse victims, this is one of the the things that we just can't quite get a handle on. But you will push away and avoid the very people who can help you. Working with abuse victims, what we realize is they don't know how to interpret love. And so they push all the loving people away and they bring into their life all the people that bring them pain. This is what Nietzsche talks about, resentment. This is what happens. There's unrest in our souls. And because there's unrest in our souls, we constantly look for a change of scenery. We do it with our jobs, we do it with our marriages, and we have justifiable reasons for this. Now, let me look at another truth here. See, the fact is, Joseph's brothers had the same opportunities as Joseph did. But you ask, what about the favoritism? I mean, how many people here are bothered by Joseph getting the coat and not the other brothers? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. You're not being honest. We don't like favoritism, especially if we lived in a family where a brother or sister were favored over and above us. And by the way, the truth is that in every family, if you're not dealing with your own soul, you will think other people are more favored than you are, even if they aren't. Let's go back to this robe. The coat of many colors, as we call it. 
In their culture, the robe was not a fashion statement like we have today. It's not that dad went out, saw a really pretty coat, expensive coat, bought it for Joseph, and he'd go showing this thing off. It had nothing to do with the fashion statement. The robe in his day, this coat of many colors, was an earned right. Reuben was the firstborn. He had a right to the inheritance of that coat. He had the birthright. He should have been wearing that coat. But what happened? Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 5. First two verses. I'll put it on the screen. You can follow with me. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn. But when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel, so he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belong to Joseph. Now let me interpret what happened here. Reuben slept with one of his father's concubines, daughters, stepsister deal. We call it incest. And because he did this, because of his own sin, there was the loss of the coat. It was due to his choice that he made. It was a consequence of his own action. And so for us reading the story, it's so easy to blame Joseph saying, yeah, he was spoiled. He was privileged. Who does Joseph think he is? I mean, even God had favorites. God gave Joseph the dreams. But think about this for a moment. We're going to find out later that, yeah, he gets in prison, false, everything else. He rises up to be the second ruler in Egypt. If you're unfamiliar with the story. But as you read this story, let this go through your mind. Would a spoiled little brat have responded in ways that Joseph did in light of the injustice that he had to endure year after year after year? See, it's so easy for us to say it's not fair. But many times we avoid our own issues and our own sin. Here's the lesson. Our choices have consequences. Now it sounds a bit simplistic, but in our culture we want choices with no consequences. In our culture, we're always out to blame somebody else. The responsibility is always on the other person. It's always the other person who's inconsistent. It's always the other person who's shallow. It's always the other one who's deceived. It's always the other one who is wrong. Now, think about how this plays out. We all know that we live in a consumeristic society. If you don't believe me, just look at the three new shopping malls they're building. Personal opinion, it drives me insane. Do we need another store? Men are saying, no, we don't. Women are saying, yeah, it's nice to have options. But in the midst of this consumeristic spirit, you ever see those ads on TV? It's called buy now and don't pay for a year. But think about the logic of that. I can buy now and I don't have the money for it, but I can wait for a year because by then I will have the money, right? But our spending keeps just ahead of our paycheck and then a year comes and we still don't have the money. See, that's a consumeristic spirit. We buy things that we cannot afford. Now contrast that with the kingdom of God spirit. We call it a generous spirit. A generous spirit doesn't say, how much can I spend? It says, how much can I give? 
A generous spirit takes what it has and says, how can I find ways to place this in God's hands like the little boy with the bread and fishes and allow him to expand in the ways that we never dreamed of? So our choices have consequences. If you live in a consumeristic spirit, it will have consequences. You'll be constantly in debt. You'll be frustrated because you will not be able to pay your bills. If you live with a generous spirit, it has consequences. Just like a selfish spirit has consequences in all of life, a proud attitude has consequences in all of life, a humble attitude has consequences in all of life. And when something evades our controlled space, we call life. I mean, you know we're control freaks. We all know that. We like to know when and where and how it's going to turn out. And we're going to know the exact date when Jesus is coming again because we've got to be ready. We don't ask questions like this. What choice did I make in my mind, in my heart, that got me here? I mean, that's not our first reaction. Our first reaction is, well, who can we blame? It's, it's their fault. They need a good dose of Jesus. And, and I'm going to pray for you. We, we spiritualize it. And we say, Lord, help them to see the error of their ways. And we thank God that we're not like that sinner in the back of that church. I think Jesus told a story about that. About someone who stood in the back and in humility beat his chest and cried out to God. And the other one in the front was saying, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that person back there. Look at everything I do for you. What I find interesting in America is that we spiritualize our own weirdness. And it makes sense to us, but it doesn't make sense to anybody else. Let me illustrate this whole consequence thing. I'm going to read a passage of scripture in Galatians, but I'm going to read it from the message. The message is more of what we call a commentary. It's, it's not a translation, but look at how this author chose to express this passage. I like what it says. Galatians 5, so you can read with me, but listen to what it says. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into revival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. Then he says this, this isn't the first time I've warned you. You know, if you use your freedom in this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives. Much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Here's the lesson of this text I want you to consider as we go through this and as you read for yourself this passage. View yourself in light of your life situations and you become like Joseph's brothers. You will murder, you will lie, 
You'll be full of anger and jealousy and envy. You'll blame. You'll push. You won't hear God speaking. View yourself in light of God's grace and fix your eyes on Jesus and you'll become like Joseph. You will not be defined by your life situation, but you're defined by the Christ of your life. And that's a massive difference. I mean, take time to observe Joseph and his brothers. You know they had the same father, they had the same circumstances, they had the same home life, they had the same working conditions, but very different outcomes. One was used by God in ways that we could not even imagine. I mean, try to develop a strategic plan for an Israeli to get to be second in command in Egypt. And I will guarantee you, you would have never thought about this plan. So what choice do you want this morning? And it's time to get honest. It's time to get honest about yourself. It's time to get honest about the God that you say or do not say that you worship. What are you avoiding in your own emotions, in your own life situations? What are you running from? I mean, we all do this, don't we? I mean, when's the last time you said something like this? You know, you make me so mad. Really? You're going to let someone else steal your joy? Relationships are messy. Can I hear an amen? Amen. (laughs) They're full of disappointments, unmet expectations, conflict. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all flawed. It's, It's flawed people trying to get along with each other. And relationships closest to us are really messy because they know us and they know the flawed details. The culture we lived in today is what they call disposable culture. Disposable whatever from food and trash and everything else. And we dispose of relationships equally as quick. Think about how quick we are to friend and unfriend people on Facebook. For people who do that. I don't. Reminds me of junior high. Remember junior high? You can't be my friend anymore. I have a new friend, and we only have one. I mean, people, we are the children of God. And we have a way that is so incredibly wonderful and wise to show to this world. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've been doing this way too long, preaching that is. Um, and I get frustrated that it seems like we cannot live with our differences. It seems like in church we allow things to divide us that should not divide us. The big three, you know what the big three are? Personalities? Well, I don't like that person because they're an extrovert, spoken like a true introvert, you know? Or preferences? Or politics? I will guarantee you that today, those three things divide more people in the church than anything else. You hear me talking about diverse unity all the time? Strength comes from Christ. We're more than conquerors. In Christ, we have no condemnation. In Christ, we have a spirit and a very diverse unity. But then we let this side show stuff separate us. And it breaks my heart. What we have to understand is that we are not in charge. Amen? <laughs> This is followership stuff. 
That's why we're called followers of Jesus. It's faith every day. It's trust. And we seek to reconcile everything to Christ and everyone to Christ. Now we're going to wrap this service up by celebrating communion. I'm going to ask those that are serving just to come down front and get ready for a while. But let me explain a few things for those that are new or visiting with us. First thing is that we have an offering that follows communion. It's been called many things, but it is for the physical needs of people among us and in our community. It's not part of our operational budget, so it doesn't go into that, but it's just used primarily for needs. And again, let me stress, it's people in our church as well as people in the community. So it's that kind of fun. So when we take the offering after communion, that's what it's for. But I want to give the suggestion. There's two ways to look at this. There's one way to says, you know what, this is our dollar offering. We put a dollar in the offering plate and collectively it gets whatever it gets. Let me talk about generosity in light of this offering and realizing that there are people that have needs. Why don't you think about putting in the plate this morning what you normally would put towards a meal that you eat after this? Think of it that way. That you're going to give a meal and bless someone else that way. Communion then. We're going to take some time to reflect on Christ. And that offering really is a reflection of our outpouring into the community then. Communion for those that are new with us, uh, we practice open communion, which means if you are a follower of Jesus, feel free to join in. It's not an exclusive club here. We're part of a church that is worldwide in its scope. And we ask you that you hold the bread and you hold the cup and we'll partake together and there'll be instruction for that. But what we practice is really, it's a time of reflection Time of confession, time of thanksgiving, it's a time of fellowship. Christ is our core. And we need to focus on him every single day and hour and minute. Amen? I'm going to read a passage and then we're going to join communion together. It's found in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. That is who and how we worship now as we celebrate his death and resurrection.